Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses that should brighten your day low actually a lot so sign up now at chumbacasino.com that's chumbacasino.com no purchase necessary btw void were prohibited by law see terms and conditions 18 plus Welcome to Jamie All Over, episode three. I am in my home state of New Jersey. We just drove up here, my brother and I, from my other brother's house in just outside of Philadelphia. Took a two-hour drive to come up to North Jersey to see a good friend in person. His name is Mikey. We call him Mikey Science. Hey there. And professionally you're known as dr michael ola welcome thanks for having me thank you so much for doing this so mikey do you mind if i call you mikey no should i call you doctor no you can just call me mikey it's fine it's Uh, what you guys always call me (laughs) can you let the listeners know your background a little bit and what your credentials are i'm an md so we're uh, i'm a medical doctor first and foremost, and then I specialize in psychiatry. I'm a general psychiatrist. Okay, so what is the difference then between a psychiatrist, psychologist, and a therapist? A psychologist has a doctorate in psychology. They have a PhD. A therapist is a kind of catch-all term because a a psychologist can do therapy, but you can also be a licensed clinical social worker and do therapy, and those tend to be very specialized, very targeted. So some are specifically for PTSD or some are specifically for, for group or addictions. You know, they have their various specialties as well. Okay. So do psychiatrists have specialties? Yes, there are specialties. There's rather subspecialties. Psychiatry is the specialty. The subspecialty would be like geriatric psychiatry or psychosomatic medicine, which was the focus between the connection between mind and body. I am so fascinated by psychosomatic illnesses. One time I accidentally read a book called Dianetics because I found it in my grandfather's attic. He hated psychiatrists. (laughs) Didn't realize it was written. Well, I did realize it was written by L. Ron Hubbard, the uh, founder, creator of Scientology. Yes. (laughs) My grandfather was not a Scientologist. I don't know why he had that book. It was a very popular book when it came out. I recall a chapter about psychosomatic illnesses, and I thought it was fascinating. It is very fascinating. You know, it's something as, you know, I mentioned the word headache, and someone might get a headache just because it's they're thinking of it, and it's that mental, you know, mind-body connection. Of course, absolutely. It's with everything, you know. Stroke patients tend to do better if they're not depressed. There's so many uh, so many instances where you see that mind-body connection, very much so. Would you say that in medical school, is that overlooked or is that something you're taught? Is that something you kind of learn later on, depending on, I guess, what type of doctor you are or your experiences? I guess maybe later on. You know, 
medical school in this country tends to be, you know, your first year is your internship year. You do the general floors. You're, you're working in a hospital. You're working like as, as a general doctor. The next three years are your residency. But medical school, you basically, everybody starts the same, you know. In the beginning, it's just gross anatomy, neurology, genetics. Then, you know, the, the following semesters, you might take physiology. Um, and then you start to get into the more medical stuff like cardiology and things like that, you know. Does spirituality ever come up in medicine? Sure. It's an essential part of people's identities. To some, uh, spirituality is not a significant, doesn't play a significant role in their lives, but to others, it's crucial. It's integral, you know, and it's instrumental in their lives, you know. Have you ever treated someone who had a near-death experience, then a came back and, and kind of let you know that they may have seen the light, the white light, or met people that have passed away? Have Not you ever had experience with that? specifically that. I had a fascinating case where this gentleman was previously diagnosed with a very severe bipolar illness with psychotic features, mean, you know, meaning he was had a mood disturbance and he was psychotic, you know, delusional, hallucinating serious, you know, I mean, just in and out of inpatient psychiatric units over and over again for decades and was struck by lightning and cured. He was actually (gasps) cured. No medication that we ever gave him, no intervention ever helped this man. But, uh, you know, he was struck by lightning and somehow, you know, the right circuits got rewired, I guess. What is your explanation for that, though? And is there a way to harness whatever happened to him and recreate it. We do try to harness that. Electroconvulsive therapy is something that has been, you know, I I talk a lot about Hollywood and stuff like that. You know, they kind of like, L. Ron really hated psychiatrists. You know, they love to demonize psychiatrists. I didn't know that about him. Oh, yeah. Most of the anti-psychiatry stuff out there is promoted by Scientology. Okay. They have a lot of good points. You know, maybe that's something to get into. Electroconvulsive therapy, you know, is not like one flew over the cuckoo's nest, you know. Yeah, because when you hear of electro, is it electrotherapy? You just think of like, oh, my gosh. Yes. Obviously, you think that's terrible, right? Yeah. But there are actual uses for that still today. Absolutely. It's It's refractory depression that is very severe. We use it for that. We can use it for a number of mood disturbances. Not to cut you off, but before we even get into the serious talk, because I do want to want to hit several subjects and some of them are a bit deeper. Do you have any sort of, not waiver, what's the word I'm looking for? A disclaimer that you'd Absolutely. like to, to put out there before we get into this. Yes, we're all friends here. We've known each other for many, many years. So this is mostly a conversation between friends, not really serious medical advice. This is meant to give insight provide general information. And, you know, if you've obviously got a serious problem, you should talk to your mental health provider, your doctor, your healthcare professional. You know, if you're having suicidal thoughts, call 911. Or there's always the National Suicide Helpline, 1-800-273-8255. Okay, thank you so much for that disclaimer. One of the hot topics right now is narcissism. I think everyone I know claims that they are dating or have dated a narcissist. Maybe that's just because I live in L.A. And I'm sure L.A. attracts more of them. It's possible. We were actually looking it up before. And I think it's between it's it's a broad range, but between two and 16 percent of the population does have narcissistic personality disorder. I heard somewhere it was around 25 percent. Maybe that's just for L.A. because I do remember (laughs) specifically someone citing L.A. for that. But can you explain what is narcissism or narcissistic personality disorder? You know, like you said, we all sort of know somebody, you know, a lot of us have have healthy narcissistic traits. You know, I don't necessarily feel that that my life is 
more valuable than someone else's, but the feeling that I have emotionally when I hear that somebody has punched an old lady in the face or something, that, that feeling that makes me feel like I'm, I'm not that person, I'm, you know, I'm better than that. Those are sort of narcissistic thoughts. There can be a healthy narcissism. You see that a lot of times in people who go into business. People who go into business may have healthy levels of narcissism. I think to some extent, a healthy level of narcissism might be required to be a CEO of a company. Now, would that fall under narcissism or socio? How is what's it called? Sociopathy? What's well, the that's, term for that's sociopath? narcissism? Yeah. Well, they're all kind of cousins. You're talking about like antisocial behavior and antisocial personality disorders. When you get into personality disorder, the DSM, which is the Diagnostic and Statistic Manual for Psychiatry, they have a very specific criteria. So if you meet five out of nine of these criteria, you can be diagnosed with the personality disorder. The personality disorder is uh, sort of like the person's operating system. It's the way, it's how they, they operate. It doesn't respond well to therapy. Do narcissistic people know that they're narcissist? There are different levels. Some of them are completely unaware. Some of them are very, very much aware. They come in different flavors. You know, there's, they can be a covert type of narcissist, a, a covert passive aggressive narcissist. There can be an overt narcissist. Well, that, okay, that first one, what does that show up as? Let's say I had a friend who was that. What would this friend be doing? This is the type of person that when people meet them, people are very much drawn to them. They can be very charismatic. They can be. It's very hard to believe that they are the person that they are, and you know, until you get to know them. Let's say from beginning until you realize, okay, this person is a narcissist. How long would that typically take for them to reveal themselves? I think that probably goes case by case, and it depends a lot on the observer, too. Some people are empaths and are particularly susceptible to narcissistic abuse. Some people who are empaths are particularly good at picking up on a narcissist. They can sort of pick them out of a crowd a little bit better than other people. When you say empaths, are these the type of people that want to try to help or change the narcissist? Or what do you mean that they're involved with them? They are people who are good at feeling other people's pain. They and tend to be people who want to help others. So they sympathize with yes, them? Yes, yes. So Empathy is mean... more than sympathy. It's sort of being able to put yourself in their sh- other person's shoes. Does that mean an empath would be able to have more patience with a narcissistic person? Or does it mean that they see the red flags sooner and leave? It may be either. You know, They have many traits that the narcissist is drawn to, namely the desire to help others, patience, perhaps, you know, in a relationship, understanding. These are all things that can be uh, exploited by a covert passive-aggressive narcissist. So as long as the narcissist is getting something out of that other person, Mm -hmm. they'll continue to find a use for them. If someone were to say, I'm putting my foot down, I'm no longer going to come clean up your mess or whatever it may be, do they discard that person or or do they, they, what do they do? Yes, they can. For example, a covert passive-aggressive narcissist knows that you know what they are. You should kind of run for the hills. They can be vindictive. They can be spiteful. They can try to hoover you. Hoovering is kind of a a term that's used in psychology. Hoover like a vacuum cleaner. They suck you back in. They love bomb you. They set you up, you know. Let me rewind for a second. When they're love bombing you, and some may do this from the beginning to lure you in, Mm -hmm. right? Do they know that this is a tactic or do they really feel these feelings that they're saying when they love bomb you? It goes on sort of a spectrum of severity. You know, some do and some don't. Some are not aware of what they're doing. Some people go into a narcissistic place as a sort of um, a coping mechanism, but they're not narcissists. People with narcissistic personality disorder are narcissistic according to the DSM criteria with all the features of self-aggrandizing and, you know, a a very... uh, 
intense fascination with, uh, you know, fantasies of extreme beauty and extreme success, uh, wanting affection that is unwarranted, egotistical behavior. People fall in and out, can fall in and out of those criteria, like many of the people in L.A. Well, here's the thing, though. I mean, there has to be cases in which people had these what would be called delusions of grandeur, or some people would claim that they had that, but then these people actually succeeded in the things that they felt were going to happen for them. So where do you draw the line between someone who's just narcissistic versus someone who just dreams big for themselves and makes that happen? When where is the where is the red flags versus the healthy confidence? The unhealthy part comes where this person is not like that in just business. They're like that across what they call all domains in every aspect of their life. It is, you know, pervasive through all aspects of their life, all their relationships. Those are signs of unhealthy narcissism and possibly the disorder, the personality disorder. When we say personality disorder, it means something that is built into your personality much the same way that the operating system on your computer works if you're using Android or iOS or something like that. It's just how the machine runs. So on a personal note, my ex and I went to various forms of therapy, like a marriage and family therapist, all the way up to a psychiatrist. I recall two of them telling me on situations in which he was either late or didn't show up. They flat out said to me, I don't know why you're bothering with therapy with him. He's a narcissistic sociopath and talking actually makes his situation worse because he's feeding into the narcissism. Is that a true thing? it is a true thing. If he's a severe narcissist, he's really got the personality disorder, it doesn't make any difference if you're giving him negative or positive attention. So there's no healing? Or what? how can you help these people? If it's really a personality disorder, pretty much the only thing you can do to help them is give them therapy that helps them play the part so they can integrate into society. I, I don't like that. Be, I almost don't want to accept that like because that's like yeah. you're teaching them how to play a how role. How to be fake, yeah, I know. But, but there's it, no it other way to But it has to be them. done for them to have a quote-unquote normal life or relationships or what? Can I make you love somebody? Can it make you change your mind? No, you have to do it yourself. It's a state of mind, you know. You can't make somebody love somebody. I can only hold a gun to your head and make you say it, you know. But if you don't feel it, it's never going to be true. Well, then what's the point of, of having them go through these... The well, charade. <laughs> you know, again, back to Hollywood. Hollywood likes to make everybody with this type of psychiatric condition into a serial killer. They're not all serial killers. Some of the worst ones are, you know, they're regular people. They just don't have any empathy. They want to have empathy. You brought up serial killers. Yeah. Would they all fall under the category of psychopath or sociopath or maybe One of the either? Two. Yeah. So if you're talking about serial killer, you know, I would say probably, yeah, most all of them are probably psychopaths, you know. And the difference to my understanding is that the psychopath has zero empathy, but a sociopath can have very little. So yeah. so a psychopath would be more dangerous in terms of a serial killer, or they both can be dangerous? A psychopath is more dangerous because a psychopath is a person with no empathy. I mean, some people are, are narcissistic to the point where you are an object to them, just like a tool or a bottle cap or a cup, something to use. But there comes a point like, you know, if you're torturing a puppy or something that, you know, they'll feel something. They draw the line somewhere. Not a psychopath. A psychopath has, it's just the circuit is broken. Do they know it? Some do, yeah. A lot of times they do. A lot of times they'll tell you that they would like to be able to feel what you're supposed to feel. Is there a way, okay, maybe not quite to the level of a psychopath, but let's say someone has been through trauma 
and they say, I can't feel anymore, but I want to. Can that type of situation be helped? I mean, I, yes. I assume it can. Yes, yes. That's a little different. What we're talking about is just a lack of empathy, a lack of feeling like going back to Ed Kuklinski from our neighborhood, from, from New here. Jersey, from New Jersey. He worked for the mob. And, you know, he killed people in particularly gruesome ways. You know, he has a history of feeding people to the rats. Uh, so if you can actually sit there and watch somebody being eaten alive by rats and beg for their life for hours, it's almost not possible to do that unless you have a defect in either the structure of your brain or the center, the part of your brain that regulates emotions, the amygdala. The amygdala, you have two amygdala. I never knew there were two. Everything on the brain is two. You have... You know, a lot of things are, are split into, yeah, the part of the brain that deals with emotional regulation and parts of the amygdala are either damaged in psychopaths, absent or malformed, or they're not working and in some way. Is this always a genetic thing or can this be, I mean, I, I think some serial killers just had a very traumatic childhood. Is that what caused yeah, this? Yeah, it can or? be. It can be. That's more the case of the sociopath because, you know, sociopaths, tend to have a lot of trauma that can cause these things later in life. We, we, we learned a lot about this when we started to um, adopt kids from Russia, from Russian orphanages. Okay. And we noticed a lot of them grew up to be antisocial, in prison, you know, violent criminals, having a lot of narcissistic, sociopathic traits, antisocial traits, even psychopathic, psychopathy. Was uh, it because they weren't held or touched or given attention? It has to do with the way that they were, yeah, from ages 1 to 3, in 3 to 11, you know, or early on, they were abused, they were neglected. Neglect is a big one because I think you get the release of something called corticotropin releasing factor in the brain. And it has this priming effect on the brain. So if your brain, your early adolescent developing brain is primed with this corticotropin releasing factor, your first experience, like say your first sexual experience or your first taste of alcohol or the first time you're intoxicated or the first time you may try cannabis becomes a very extremely different experience than what the normal is. It, it may be completely different. And it's because their brain, brains are primed a certain way. So you have structural brain changes and there's an environmental factor that plays a role, too. But somebody like Ed Kuklinski, who just could feed people to the rats and not right. flinch, you know, that's a, there's, there's a neurological thing there. He was born that right. way. And you born. can actually see that in an MRI? That you might not be able to see in an MRI. You might be able to see it on some other weighted types of imaging, structural differences in the brain. Should we scan everyone early on so we know who's a potential serial killer and perhaps do, you know, proactive therapy or whatever for certain well, people that can fall into this category? Sometimes it's very, there's a component of it that is very heritable. So if you look at Jeffrey Dahmer's dad, some of the things that he wrote about in his autobiography after Jeffrey had done all this stuff, you know, he had fantasies when he was young, a younger man as well, violent fantasies similar to what Jeffrey Dahmer experienced. So there is definitely a heritable component to it. So he had these thoughts but didn't act on them. His son did. Now, would you say to a certain degree just an everyday person might have these thoughts as well, but they don't act, you know, someone cuts you off and you... Is it normal? Sure. And I hate to use the word normal. But what percent? Are you but, are you thinking about this all the time? Are you thinking about... You okay, know, so a small amount of the time is somewhat okay, is my sure, question. But, but if it's all if you're thinking about hurting people all the time, then I'm just yeah. wondering where is the line drawn? I don't know if there is a hard and fast line, but, you know, let's just say 
you know, if you're thinking about dismembering people all the time and torturing animals and stuff like that, even though you're not acting on it, you know, that's the time to get help and talk to someone, you know, or if you see that type of behavior in a young person, that's very particularly concerning. Cruelty to animals at a young age is a big time red flag. That would be a hard and fast red flag. Cruelty to animals, especially the family pet, cruelty to the family pet would be a big red flag. Definitely. And you hear of that often is is that that's how they kind of start why is that well Dahmer did that too he would string up cats and do things to them why do you think they start with is it just easier access or it's not you know I think small things are easier to control and then what happens do they not get whatever feeling or not feelings I guess they don't have feelings but they don't get whatever they wanted to get out of that and they have to up the ante to humans or what sure I mean it's a pleasure thing you know I mean it's it's Dopamine gets released, just like, you know, when you engage in any other type of pleasurable uh, activity. There's neurotransmitters that get released. There's endorphins. So they do have some feeling then. Is that correct? The feeling of sexual arousal or some other type of hyperarousal, but not Not feelings of empathy. Like, you know, I feel terrible that you're suffering and going through this pain. They don't have a feeling really one way about it or another. You're just an object, really. You're just something that does something. You're not a person to them. Have you treated any serial killers or killers? Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, interestingly, the hospital that I did my residency at, uh, Bergen Regional Medical Center in, in Paramus, which is now called Newbridge, they're, they're, one of their units was, although located on hospital property, it's technically a Bergen County Sheriff's Department unit located on the hospital property. So, you know, that's like where the really violent cases wind up. So what can be done for for are are they in prison? Are you treating them in prison or, or at what they stage have, do you see them? In that situation, they have either made a suicidal or homicidal attempt or gesture in prison or they become uh, delusional or started to hallucinate without drugs or they are suffering from, you know, psychotic disorder or mood disturbance. Or if they've tried to escape, you know, they're definitely going to wind up there in the psyche valve. Sometimes it's intentional. Sometimes they don't want to get beaten up by other prisoners, so they'll do things like pretend they're psychotic. They'll say they're hearing voices. They'll make a suicidal gesture without intent to carry it through just to be taken out of the prison population. Uh, At that point, they're a flight risk also. They may be trying to escape. I had one patient that was uh, not allowed to, you know... People who are from the area will probably remember this case. This young man had, he beat up his girlfriend and then he was arrested for that. He went to UMDNJ because he faked a seizure while in police custody. He escaped from there and then killed his girlfriend and then drove around with her in the car with the seatbelt on and everything. And then uh, when they got, they got him in the parking lot, he slit his own throat. So um, then he came to me. So my specialty is very severe cases. Wow. On a personal note, how do you take in all of those heavy, heavy topics and not take it all on yourself and get depressed yourself? And what what do you do? That's a good question. I don't know. Me personally, I think a lot of it, we tend to get desensitized a little bit, especially those of us that deal with very acute psychiatric care, because we've seen it all, people throwing feces, people eating feces, people doing bizarre things, you know, taking a shower with a book bag that has a dead skunk in it Oh my! all kinds of right yeah so it, it, you just get to a certain point where it's some of it is desensitized but also you don't want to go to a therapist that has too much empathy i mean to be honest you're not going there for the therapist or the psychiatrist to feel your problems empathize with you and get into that that zone where you're both kind of you're there for a different perspective and it's not always good for a therapist to empathize 
some empathy is good. Too much empathy is bad. So you sort of have to put up a, a, a bit of a wall, and that certainly helps. The hard ones are like the child predators and the, um, you know, pedophiles and things like that. You I know, because you really you've got to push down this urge to just you know, totally rage, you know what I mean? But, you know, back to our discussion about impulse control, you know, people have thoughts all the time. Some of them are intrusive. Some of them can be, Well, you know. okay, let's let's get into the intrusive thoughts and anxiety. Does mm-hmm. that fall under anxiety, intrusive thoughts? It can. Obsessive yeah, absolutely, thoughts. because the obsessive-compulsive disorders and obsessive-compulsive personality disorder are on the same spectrum, but they're, you know, or hoarding disorder. Those are considered types of anxiety disorders, believe it or not. But the difference, again, with personality disorder, someone who has obsessive compulsive disorder knows that they have OCD. They know that there's something wrong with it. They don't like it. Okay. They don't want it. They are unhappy. They're coming to you for help because they're out of bounds with their hand-washing routine or something really is, you know, interfering with their life. Is that something you can naturally grow out of or do you have to seek help? It depends. Sometimes it's so severe that it can really cause a complete impairment in a, a person's life. But the person with that's a person with OCD, mm-hmm. but there's OCPD. What's that? Obsessive compulsive personality disorder. Again, when you're talking about personality, you're talking about hard wiring. That's the operating system. This is not the person that's coming to you for help like the other one. This is the person that is perfectly happy doing what they're doing. They like to count newspapers. They like to do their routine. They're, they don't want you to bother them. When I'm walking you know? up steps, I count. But I only count to eight, so I'll go one, two, three, four, up to eight, and then I start over again. Is that some sort of minor OCD? Mm, we all have, again, there's a spectrum, right? So you can have healthy obsessive traits. You know, if you obsess about fitness and work, that might not be, you know, a bad thing. To um, a point. To a point. But you can shut off your, you know, if you're counting to eight, some people, you know, they see the number eight everywhere. Oh, no, look, there's me, the volume knob. I think knob, it's from like cheerleading or dance or something because okay. it's like counting. It was just like kind of ingrained. Like we would do the moves up until eight and then start over again. So I feel gotcha. like it's some sort of like weird conditioning that no, I have. I think it's in me too because as a drummer, I've oh, had that drum for, for dancers. Most of the time when we do music, it's you count one, two, three, four. Right. Dancers are five, six, seven, eight. Right. And you're like, what? Five, six, seven, eight, what? But, you know, it may be okay. something like that. I don't know. Well, yeah, you and I have that in common where you're much better at drumming than I am. But maybe that's where it comes from too. Although, I, you know, you only maybe. one. Yeah. I mean, you go to four. I don't know. Interesting. Interesting to, to think about. Yeah. I mean, Diagnose you, me. No. <laughs> no, you're, no, those are fine. You know, you know, if you think about spirals all the time, you'll see them everywhere. You'll see them in the toilet bowl. When the water goes down, you'll see them in the, world, in the whirlpool. You'll see them, you know, in the telephone dial. You'll see them in the, the storms. You know, some people want to look for spirals. Some people can't stop thinking about them. That's the difference. And when you say spirals, it could be anything? It could be anything. You know, it could be germs. It could be... Okay. spirals it could be you know it lives in a certain place of the brain called the cingulate gyrus cingulate c-i-n-g-u-l-a-t-e i'm not sure what if that's latin uh, you know cingulate gyrus is a place in the brain that we know that if we actually lesion it damage it or cut it out obsessive compulsive disorder goes away that's very interesting yeah okay i want to stay on anxiety for a bit because i really don't have an issue with it the the most that I can probably say that I have with anxiety is late at night, I do have sometimes intrusive thoughts where I want to go to sleep and I can't, but I'll just put on a guided meditation and I'm okay. But I do have a lot of friends that suffer with anxiety or um, ADD or ADHD 
first of all, where does it stem from? Is it different for everyone or is there a common, I guess, denominator as, you know, people who have anxiety, where did this come from? Yeah, it's different for everyone. So for some people, anxiety comes from the past. Some people have had a traumatic experience in their past and uh, that is a source of their anxiety. For some people, the anxiety comes from the future, things that haven't happened yet, things that could happen, things that might happen, things that might not happen. Some people have both. If you have an anxious parent and you're, you grow up with that, would you then become anxious yourself? That's a very interesting question. If you have a parent that has a tendency to project their feelings onto the child all the time, constantly projecting their own feelings on the child, you know, that certainly has an impact on the way your personality develops. And that means you can also develop a personality disorder. The way your parent treats you has a lot to do with the way your personality develops. Projection is a big thing, though, you know, like parents that project a lot. What would be an example of that? Projection would be if I have a bad day at work and come home and yell at my wife because of it. Okay. So yelling at their Taking it out on her. Okay. You know, it's not her fault, you know, I had a bad day at work. I'm going to come home and yell about the meatloaf, Mm -hmm. Uh, you know. Right. uh, What are some things people can do if they feel an onset of anxiety coming on? Well, there's a lot of things you can do. Being that anxiety is either going to be coming from the past or from the future, one good thing to do is become very aware of the present. So if you uh, kind of really, there's an art to engaging the present moment, you know, and it takes sometimes a lot of practice. It takes meditation. So I think, you know, one of the first steps is to become aware of your breathing. So if you can just become, you know, it's very hard to think of two things at the same time. So if you can just think about your breathing in the midst of this panic and just say, okay, breathing, breathing, counting, start counting your breathing, think about your breathing, become aware of your breathing. Is there a sequence that is most helpful in breathing? I, I think it could go case by case. You know, what helps one person might not be helpful for another, but once you're aware of your breathing, you're actually, you're in the present. You're meditating in a way. That's your first step into the journey. You know, if you can get into that state a couple of times a day, you know, it's like working out a bicep or something. You become better at it. And, you know, that's one one means of stress reduction. Increasing the neurotransmitters in your brain that are involved in elevating your mood, like serotonin, can be done without a, a serotonergic medication. It can be done without any medication. You can just get some direct sunlight, vigorous physical activity. For example, if in a person's life their greatest amount of stress is related to their work environment and they're not experiencing much stress in the other domains of their life, therapy for them is going to be targeted at mitigating the issues in the workplace that are causing the stress. For example, if they're in a managerial position, you know, maybe surrounding yourself with the right people. It could be any any number of interventions, you know, perhaps it's going to be avoiding a certain individual in the workplace. Let's say you can't avoid specific difficult people. They are a part of your, unfortunately, and out of your control, they are a part of your life, whether it's through work or, you know, mutual friendships. Let's say there's a difficult person that you are forced to deal with unless you quit your job or whatever. What can you do to kind of get through difficult interactions with people or avoid them? Or I've personally found after many years of working in real estate and property management, a landlord will always be evil to somebody. You will always be their enemy. And at first, it was the most difficult. It still is the most difficult part of the job. The reason why I don't want to do it, but I've had to find ways to cope with it. I almost wish that I found these ways sooner because it took many, many years. And it's a very simple solution, which just was don't take it personally. 
realize that even though they're personally insulting me because I won't do this or that for them or give grant them this favor because I did them one favor and now bit me in the butt and they expect them all the time, what I've just tried to teach myself is to not take it personally, not take their insults personally. For some people, that, that would be impossible. It's great if you can actually do that. But if you can't, there are other methods. Sometimes... You know, like with dealing with a narcissist, there's a method called the gray rock method where you try to just make yourself uninteresting, boring. You don't give them anything to feed off of. I've heard this and you yeah. you, just, you can't engage but because there's no, be there's no reason because you're holding a lot back. Mm-hmm. But the other part of that is you have to have a safe place to externalize those feelings. You have to have someone when you're done with that interaction at the end of the day. You need someone that you can externalize those feelings with. and Anyone or a therapist, a, therapist a professional? That's what, what a therapist is for. Okay. What if they can't afford therapy or their insurance doesn't pay for it, they don't have insurance, whatever it may be, and let's say they don't, they don't want to burden friends or family? There are what mental health clinics that are, like, for example, in our area, Bergen-Newbridge, take charity care. So you can go to the clinic and they can assign you a therapist, a social worker. It'll be a, a social worker. And if you need medication, they can assign you to a psychiatrist. And that's everywhere in the country? Someone can find this? Uh, well, I'm, I know that in certain parts of the country, people don't have access to that type of service, um, which is why we definitely should put more money into mental health. But in our area, they have those services. I'm sure that uh, in your area, they have similar services. So there are places to get help. You have to look for charity care. Um, well, if hospitals. someone were to Google it, what would they Google to do a search for these types of places? Mental health clinic that accepts charity care. So you sign up for charity care. In California, it might not be charity care. It may be something else. I'm, I'm not exactly sure. There are services. There are ways. You know. And now with the expanding internet, there's a number of online therapists also yes. that you can you know, Zoom with and Skype with and things like that. How do you feel about that? For example, BetterHelp or these telepsychiatry. I know that you, I think that you do some telepsychiatry as well. Yes. Um, what are your thoughts on that as a whole? Is that a good thing that people are having more access to it or are there, yeah, any, no, are the there access, any negative aspects to it? There are, yeah. You know, it's a great thing, especially in a post-COVID world. And it's also a very good thing for people that live in areas that don't have access to a therapist or a psychiatrist. You know, it's a great way to reach them. You know, one of the downfalls, I guess, is that there's no substitute for human interaction. You know, there are certain physical cues, verbal cues. And then it goes without saying that, you know, um, on a lot of telesessions, there's not a nurse practitioner on the other end, say, taking the blood pressure, taking vitals during a urine, doing a, a urinalysis or something else. So you lose that also. Because there there can be situations where it's actually not a mental health issue, but it's presenting itself as maybe anxiety, but it could be a different health issue. Always the organic comes first. You know, in, in psychiatric and psychological illnesses, anxiety disorders, we were just talking about anxiety. You always want to make sure, you always want to start with the first with a thorough medical workup. So you want to make absolutely sure that the person's anxiety is not related to their, you know, high blood pressure or their thyroid hormone. You know, one of the things we do is uh, we take a TSH, that's your thyroid stimulating hormone. That's part of any psychiatric workup because thyroid hormone is so involved in mood. I mean, it, it can make you psychotic if you've got too much of it. It can make you depressed if you don't have enough. It can make you hyperactive, give you insomnia, create an anxiety disorder. You have and to make ha- sure. I'm sorry, how do you test for that? Is that a blood test? Sure, just a general medical workup. You would order a blood test with a TSH. That's your thyroid stimulating hormone. Uh, you might want to look at the free T4 
T3, you, you will look at the electrolytes. You're going to look at folate and B12. Those are also very much involved in mood, especially in older people. Would you suggest everyone take a B12 supplement or some people getting it in their nutrition? B12 is sort of hard to get in a pill. By the time you digest the pill, so little of it gets in your bloodstream. The best way to take it is either intranasally. Uh, there's a number of companies, I think, that still make an intranasal version that you can get over the counter or intramuscular injection is the way we give it. What about the liquids? Some that you, I think you can hold it under your tongue for 10 seconds for better absorption and then you swallow yeah, it. Yeah, I've seen those. Yeah. I, I don't know what the absorption is. It's better than, than taking a pill. But okay. again, that's the problem with B12, you know, and that's also the problem with uh, really strict vegetarians. You know, you need to get that B12 in you. So yeah, intramuscular injection is the best. Everyone knows I'm vegan. So I do take a B12 supplement because of that. Do you want a shot um, of B12? I don't want a shot okay. of it. No, I mean like an injection. No, I know. I have them. Okay. <laughs> not, not at the moment. Okay. But I'll give you a thousand units, John one said shot. He'll take one. I'll give you a whole month. Maybe month's we'll worth do it before and after, and I can report. Okay. I've never had one. I don't like shots. Who does? But yeah. So, I mean, if I don't want to take a shot, mm -hmm. you're saying that there's a nasal. Intranasal. Well, you have in your mouth, like where you dissolve the tablet mm -hmm. in your cheek, that's like epithelial tissue. Okay. So, it's a certain type of tissue. You have that sort of tissue in your. Uh, your nares, okay. so you can absorb it through there. Okay. It's so like red jelly. You squirt it in. Nasally is better even than sublingually, which is through the mouth. Honestly, or you don't I, know. <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm not sure. Okay, well, I'll look into yeah. it because I'm curious the now. The best is going to be the IM injection. But I don't want to get how. All right, how often would someone have to do that? Is it like a once if a week deficient? thing? Deficient? No, once a month. Oh. Once a month in the case of B12 deficiency. And where, where do you inject? In the uh, glute. I thought it's so. a painful one because it has it to be deep into the muscle. <gasps> Yeah, it's deep. And then the needle is like kind of, you can't suck up the B12 with a skinny needle. Oh, you are not there. talking me into this. <laughs> well, you'll have a, you get a mega dose of B12. What do you feel and like? And it's after? water soluble. A lot of people have a placebo effect. They feel like they're powerful, like they want to knock down a wall. I think that's mostly placebo, you okay. know, but if you're, if you're anemic or if you're slightly deficient, even if you're on paper not deficient within the normal range, but low normal, you may be experiencing fatigue. Some people definitely report more energy afterwards. So I have a few questions from listeners. Hopefully you can help answer some of these. So the first one is, how do I attempt to deal with trauma of emotional, physical, and sexual abuse after suppressing it for 20 years? I've tried two therapists and it didn't help. Where would you tell this person to start? You have to start looking for a different therapist. I know that might sound trivial and that's not probably the answer that, you know, anybody wants to hear in that very unfortunate situation. You know, first of all, I'm sorry that they're going through that. That's terrible. But the good part about it is it seems like they have some insight. They know that they've repressed it. They know the source of it. So with the right person, these are things that can be worked through. With the right therapist, some people need to, re, in a way, reprocess this trauma. And, and can they do that simply by talking through it? Or is there are there techniques in which they, the therapist can kind of bring them back to that point in their life, hypnotherapy, or absolutely. what would you suggest? There's both. I mean, you know, in the, in the case of something like this, which sounds like it could be post-traumatic anxiety, there's a spe specific therapy that just deals with eye movement desensitization. So the therapist is trained in this, and as you are reprocessing and re-experiencing in certain ways, the trauma, your eye movements are tracked, and then the therapist will uh, work with those eye movements to try to repress this, rather quell the feelings. 
and help the person reprocess it. Sometimes group therapy works for other people. With any intervention, there's a risk-benefit ratio. So with a medication, obviously, there's risk, there's side effect, and there's benefit. But with any intervention, therapy, right, group therapy or individual therapy, with individual therapy, you're at risk of finding the wrong therapist. You don't How get a good match. What can someone do to help them in their search for the right therapist? It helps to get an honest referral from a therapist. Therapists know other therapists. The internet is a very powerful tool, uh, a good bit of research, and trial and error, really. That's unfortunate because... I understand it's part of the process, but it's unfortunate because I feel like people might be in this situation where they tried maybe two or three, it didn't help, and they just may think therapy isn't for me. Yeah, that's terrible because therapy is more powerful than medication. Unless you're talking about a psychotic disorder where people are hallucinating and they need medication, I would always choose therapy. The right therapy over medication. Sometimes medication and therapy are the right combination, but a good therapist can really, really help pull someone out of out of the darkness as it were you know why does just talking about an experience help you heal because you're externalizing it you're putting it out there in a safe way safe meaning you know there's a match with the therapist or if you're going to couples therapy you're going to be saying things to the therapist that you're not going to get in trouble for things that you wouldn't say to your husband or spouse you can say to the therapist and it's a sort of a safe zone that's the way it kind of works, you know, as you, you know, there's with a therapist and a patient, there's a transference and a countertransference, just like how we're talking. I'm picking up on your cues there, you know, whatever they are, they're subtle. It can be any number of things. It could be body language. It could be personal experience, relatability. Some people need a, a mother type figure or father type figure, someone more nurturing. It could be the type of therapy is wrong, you know, you know, there are different types of therapy, sometimes group helps more than individual therapy for certain people because in helping others, they help themselves. Right. So case by case all the time. That's one of the most important things I ever learned in medical school was, and this is why I'm, I'm not too, you know, I'm more of a formulationist, not a diagnostician with all these billing codes in the DSM. People are individuals. So if you come into the emergency room and you have, a, let's say, a patient and the EKG shows that the heart is moving slowly and you know the nurse is ready to like pull the sirens and call code blue and you know call the fire marshal and call the ambulance you know just basically like panic mode but then you go inside the room and you see that this person is built like the incredible hulk he's built like thor he tells you that he does crossfit and that he runs marathons and that he's been doing this for 20 years and that's why his heart rate is abnormally slow there's nothing wrong with the rhythm of his heart it's just that he has so many blood vessels and his heart squeezes one time and there's mm -hmm. oxygenation everywhere. So you're not treating the EKG strip. You treat the patient. Similarly, if someone's in the emergency room and they're, you know, you're the doctor, you're going to, nurse is telling you, oh, this patient is good. They, you know, they came in with a fever. They're about to be discharged. You know, they have, uh, you know, like uh, a little bit of bradycardia. They, they actually have a normal heart rate, you know. Uh, everything's normal. Actually, no, everything's not normal because you should n almost never have a normal heart rate if you have a fever. You know what I mean? So you, you really have to go in the room, talk to the patient, see who you're dealing with. What are their genetic factors? Their biological factors, their social factors. Yeah. That's the most important thing. Treating the individual. The individual. So this individual in this who's posed this question, I think needs a very individualized type of therapist, a very specific therapist, a good match where there's counter transference 
and transference and it's a healthy dynamic, you know? Right. So on the flip side of that, I'm sure that you've treated the abusers as well. Mm -hmm. Now, do you see cases in which, let's take domestic violence, for example, do you see situations where they can be rehabilitated? Because, you know, the advice, let's say a woman is being abused, the advice is get out, leave. But now that person is just available to abuse their next victim. What is the best way to help the abuser to heal? And can they be healed? Again, it goes case by case. You know, some abusers will have a great deal of insight and no personality disorder per se. Others have a personality disorder and there's really not too much hope in helping them unless they're willing to just, you know, go through the motions and try to fake it. That only gets you so far in life. That's kind of a sad situation too. Some people don't have any insight. Some people have good insight. Some people have impaired judgment. Some people have alcohol problems. Alcohol is very disinhibiting and it's like, it's everywhere. So we see that in a lot of the domestic violence cases. When it comes to the perpetrator, a lot of times, you know, I'm not, I'm not trying to paint everybody with a broad stroke or anything, but a lot of times when you eliminate the alcohol, the offender gets better. So I'm just wondering if you find yourself in a relationship with somebody that has any of the issues we spoke about, do you just consider these red flags and leave? I guess this is actually a bad question because no, it, it all not, depends on it's what just, the It reinforces the case-by-case case thing, right? Yeah. Everything's on an individual basis. The I mean, case it, is different each time. Sometimes, you know... It's kind of a... Unfortunately, this whole you know thing, it has to be generalized because we're not talking about specifics, but I still want to kind of try to help give maybe some people some insight if they happen to be in any of these situations. But let's take something not maybe as heavy and, and you're just dealing with a person who has wronged you and you've lost trust for them and it's a friend perhaps and they've apologized and you've forgiven them let's say three times do you continue to just for, as long as they're asking for forgiveness do you continue to let this person stay in your life or at what point do you say I don't need this friendship or this relationship anymore this is when I walk away geez I guess that Everybody draws that line at a different point. It's different for everybody. Certainly in the case of physical abuse, I would say, you know, I think we can pretty much all agree that's the line, right? Of course, So there's a line there. Forgiven for what? For trivial things? Or are these things that that show like a a really a deficit in character? Are they likely to be repeated? Or like were they three different one-off things? Because if it's a repeating pattern, Mm -hmm. the greatest predictor of future behavior tends to be previous past behavior so what if they tell you they've changed well telling some you know it's just those are just they have words. to show it sure yeah. absolutely yeah. they have yeah. to demonstrate that and it's funny if you've ever been to a jewish wedding they're they're very interesting I have. they break the plate right mm-hmm. you saw the break you know they break the smash the plate that's greek too no they do that too right the reason they do that in well in, in, in the Judaism, Jewish don't they break the glass in the Jew, that's what I've seen and in Jewish wedding they break I, the glass. I recall it is a breaking of a ceramic plate and okay. it's specifically ceramic because ceramic can't be put back in the kiln and remade into the same shape. In other words, no matter how deep the bond is between two people, if you hit, break it, really break it, if you hit it hard enough to smash it into pieces, there's nothing that can put it back together ever again. It has to be started from a new. Right. So you're starting a fresh new relationship. That's the, you know, the person you're starting the fresh new relationship, are they likely to change? What's the thing that caused the shattering of the, you know, ceramic? I mean, 
you know, what was it? Was it infidelity or was it just bad decision making? Because, you know, if it wasn't fidelity, what, what kind was, like was a it? Lack, what if it wasn't a, let's say friendship. And what if it was just maybe something you might perceive as a character flaw? They maybe told a secret or talked about you behind your back or did something that you perceived as something a friend wouldn't do to you. But yet they're telling you that they value you and they're sorry and they've changed. Does it benefit the person to not obviously hold a grudge? I know there's benefit to not holding grudges and forgiving, but where do you draw that line between not wanting to hold that within you and wanting to forgive people versus not letting someone who's potentially dangerous into your life again? Well, you know, certain things aren't mutually exclusive. You can certainly forgive somebody and not necessarily let them back into your life. You can also forgive someone and sort of hold them at a distance, Mm -hmm. which depending on what they did to get you there, might be well-deserved. And uh, it also also gives a person time to demonstrate that they have changed. These relational issues are just like everything else. They go case by case, and they're highly individualized. Right. That's what a good therapist is for, you know? Yes, yes. yes. I was just going to say also, like, um, looking at a more extreme case, somebody who, who might be in danger of physical harm, you always want to, you know, offer them and escape, get them to services where they can actually, in our, our area, there are services where a woman can go get an anonymous, anonymous PO box, be in a group where there's a social worker that will find housing and stuff like that, help with, you know, childcare and stuff like that. You know, so. I was shocked. I've been doing some work with something called the Purple Leash Project. They partnered with Purina and another organization called Red Rover because the majority of Domestic violence shelters do not accept pets. They're unable, they don't have the facilities to take in the pets. But a staggering amount, and I don't want to just throw out a number and be wrong, but I think it's somewhere in 70 or 80% of these DV victims stay because they can't bring their pet with them. Have you heard anything about this? Yes, it is a difficult situation. I've had a couple of cases like that. I think uh, definitely more awareness on that topic is needed for sure. Pets are like children to a lot of people, so it can make the situation a whole lot more difficult. It really can. Yeah, I mean, I I think we need to move to all of the domestic violence shelters being able to accept pets. Or, if that's not a possibility, creating separate shelters for pets that belong to these domestic violence victims slash survivors. That's a great idea. I like that idea a lot. Maybe Jamie needs to work on that <laughs> next yeah. project. I've I have been trying to bring a lot more awareness to this issue with the Purple Leash Project, though. I think what they're doing is amazing. Trying to currently, they're taking these DV shelters and making them accessible for pets. That's great. I'm going to look into that. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Okay, so you were recently in LA visiting. Yes. And on a previous trip to LA. It was one of my favorite experiences living in Los Angeles was when you and your wife, Meg, came out to visit. And uh, you are a car enthusiast. Yes. It's one of your healthy obsessions, we can say. (laughs) And so with one of your cars, which was a Ferrari, I don't know if you still have it, but it comes with something called Ferrari Concierge. What is that? Oh, yeah, that was really, that was pretty, pretty cool. Uh, I was lucky to have that for a year. And they they get you in into the all the A list places 
which is a pretty nice perk. So when you were in LA, you, you had said, what is the hardest place to get into? Let's put them through their paces and yes. see if they can actually We did. We deliver. tested them out, right? We did. Yeah. And to this day, I am reaping the rewards of this because I said to you, the Magic Castle, without a membership, that's the hardest place to get into in Los Angeles. Awesome. That was a great night, by the way. So fun. And they came through. They, they got us passes. And I don't know of any other situation where someone was able to get into the Magic Castle without being a member or being a magician, like taking classes there or being invited by guests, I mean, by a member or a magician. So th those are the ways that you can get in. Clearly, we've sidestepped all of that through Ferrari Concierge. Yeah, that's it. Was really, yeah, they remembered me at Chateau Marmont, too. They let me in. So that was good. I got some perks out of that also. Yeah. yeah. So the perks that I got out of that is that the night that we were there, we went into the Houdini room, which is so cool. It has all of the, the Houdini artifacts in there, like the milk can that, that he escaped from and the straight jackets that he wore. And I remember walking through there and admiring everything. And one of the magicians saw me doing this and he was impressed that I was so impressed with Houdini that he gave me his card and he said, anytime you want to come back, just email me here. Wow. So through that connection, I have been able to go back to the magic castle anytime i've wanted to that without awesome. having to become a member so thank you and thank you for our concierge <laughs> for that hook uh, on I'm top glad. of that we also said okay another hard thing was getting into club 33 at disneyland yes that's a tough one that's a really tough one too and you have to the, submit stuff in writing and, well the waiting know, list typically write an the, essay yes but typically the process to get into that is you have to become a member, but the waiting list is years long and the fee I'm sure is astronomical, but it, it is astronomical. What yeah. is it like 20,000 or is it more? I don't even know. It's, yeah. But, I hate writing essays too. Well, you what they said, no, like, they said you, we had to submit bios, Yeah, which we all did. And fortunately <laughs> we passed somehow and they let us in, but we didn't go just because of the time, the, whatever time constraints. Yeah. Whatever day. They were going to let us in. We couldn't make it. So I've, have you been there? I have yet to go. No, I, I haven't. I, I promised you if I ever went, I would take you. I'm going to try to get us in next time. <laughs> My other brother, Jason, has been. I think he did. How did he do that? Through work? Disney's a client of Epson. Okay. Oh, I heard Disney, the food's Disney's really good. I hear that too. So speaking yeah. of your car love yeah. and obsession, I hear you had some trouble with the law for having oh, a specific yeah. car. Tell, tell me about yeah, that. Yeah, I sure did. I got into some trouble back many years ago. I like the uh, Nissan Skyline. I've always been a very big fan of that car. And um, that's the car in Fast and It was and in Furious? Fast and Furious, yeah. But the, the Skyline, the R34 Skyline specifically, specifically that one, that's the naughty one. You know, that's the one you're not allowed to have. So as the importation laws are written, it says you're allowed to import a unibody vehicle you know, if it has no engine and no trans, it's not considered a car. It's considered car parts and therefore eligible for importation. Uh, the problem happened when we put the cars together. That's where I'm told we broke the law because we became guilty of, of importing the cars with the intent of circumventing the uh, U.S. Customs law. So, so who came knocking at your door? Immigration Customs Enforcement. Can you wow. believe that? And the Department of Justice. <laughs> yeah, it was crazy. They followed my wife to work. <laughs> You know, they interrogated my parents. They came to my parents' house. They searched the house and stuff like that. Uh, I would get into arguments with them. You know, they'd harass me and 
asked him if I if I was detained, you know, and if I was free to go. And I, how if they did had they know that you had it? The gentleman that imported them uh, was actually a former Orange County sheriff, and we all thought it was on the up and up. So did he. I mean, we made an honest mistake, allegedly. Okay, mm-hmm. made allegedly made a mistake, and they they raided his place. They found a few cars that were for the Fast and Furious movie, but they didn't count because they didn't have engines in them. You know. So how did they use them on set? Crash dummies they, to, to crash them and stuff for some of the, the oh, chase scenes. Okay. Or they were just, you know, just like sitting. Okay. But they raided his office. They got his computer. And most and of the clients, were, yeah, I was on it. So I was the only one on the East Coast, to my knowledge. Okay. The only client, you know. Most of them were from California. So how many of those these cars even exist? Of the R34, there's a couple of bond-released ones, and you can get them in under special exemptions temporarily as for show and display or whatnot, but I think the majority of them are illegal. I, I wouldn't know. Maybe just a handful. At the time, just a handful. The actual number of bond U.S. bond-released, meaning Customs says it's okay to have it, R34 Skylines in the United States still is probably just maybe under five. Oh, my gosh. You know? Yeah. Those are from a company called Motorex that imported them and also got in trouble for importing them. But in that case, the judge decided that, you know, the customers would be allowed to keep their cars. So they bond released them and they, they shut them down and they didn't allow it anymore. Breaking then, the law. Breaking the law. Breaking the law. Yeah. Okay. So speaking of L.A., you, you recently came back for a trip uh, a couple weeks ago. Have you noticed any difference? It's too bad that the homeless situation is horrible. It's very sad. Yeah. Would you say it's more of a, uh, is it a homeless issue or is it a, a, you know, addiction slash mental health issue that, that we have going on? Again, I sound like a, you know, a parrot with the individual thing, but you know, again, individuals, everybody's there for a different reason. Sometimes it's mental health. Sometimes there's really bad. They're schizophrenic. Sometimes it's a dual diagnosis type of thing. They have a mental health disorder. They have a psychiatric condition and a substance abuse disorder. At the same time, there's a variety of reasons and there are people who are in a variety of stages of homelessness. Some are are ready to exit homelessness. Some are not there yet. Some are nowhere near it. People are all at different different stages of it. It's just a shame. It's expanding for sure. Right. In the last five years, it's gotten completely out of hand, I would say. Will there ever be a solution? I think that it's more realistic to focus on uh, compromise instead of a solution. I think when you start looking for a real solution, you know, you also don't want to do anything that's in- inhumane. Sometimes in our efforts to be humane, we-, we wind up creating a bigger problem. So I think there's some of that going on for sure. And just these kind of catch-all uh, blanket policies, one-size-fits-all policy, I don't think it's any good. I think these cases should be taken on an individual basis. There are biological, psychological, and social factors that all contributed to the person winding up in that situation, and they need to be addressed on an individual basis. Right. And we spoke earlier about an example of triage or going into an emergency room and people in that situation their needs are addressed based on how serious the issue is. It seems cruel, right? I mean, triage is kind of cruel because you have to step over somebody that's bleeding and, you know, they're begging you to help them, but they're fatally wounded and you know that you can't save them and you've got to move on to the person that you can save and save them. Even if you're right next to the person screaming, you know, it seems horribly cruel, but sometimes you have to be cruel to be kind. 
Yeah. And I don't claim to be an expert on the LA homeless problem, but it is my understanding that the way that their system works is it's, it's a first come first serve basis. It's not by who needs the help the most and who's ready for the help the most. It's kind of like a line and whoever's next up in line, if they don't have all of their paperwork submitted or, or all their, whatever is needed, it's holding up everyone behind them. Yeah. There's nothing efficient or common sense. There's nothing, you know, intelligent about that. That doesn't and make that's, sense. I mean, that's a deeper issue that I don't need to get into any of those. No, no, topics, I get you. But you know, we tr- sometimes we try to be humane and, you know, we have these feel good policies that seem good and they seem like they are the right thing, but you know, they're really not the right thing at all. When the airplane goes down, right, and the oxygen mask drop from the top, and you have a child sitting next to you, you know, it might seem cruel not to put the mask on the child, but you're supposed to put it on yourself first. Mm-hmm. That's just the order of things, you know. It's the way that you ensure that there's not two dead people. Right. You've got to get rid of a lot of these feel-good policies that right. don't make sense, I think. Right. And we can bring awareness to it, but... We're not in legislation. Yeah, no, I think even if we were, it wouldn't help. You know, people Mm -hmm. are of a certain mindset now. We didn't touch on delusions and stuff like that. But earlier in our talks, we talked about folie adieu, the the shared psychosis, where somebody who's susceptible to it can become psychotic just from living with someone who's psychotic. They live with a delusional person, they're susceptible, and they start to believe that person's delusion. You know, and it's also very easy when you attach feel-good emotions to these things, you know, you have a recipe for feel-good laws that don't really work or do do anything at what all. Did, I mean, I know you don't live in California, and you're not a lawyer. I don't know why I'm asking no. you this, but you are very, very well informed, so maybe you have some insight as to the law where, you know, $900 or less, if you steal that in, is it, I think it's just L.A. County, there's no repercussions. You don't go to jail or you yeah, get I mean, released that's, immediately. That's a perfect example of us trying to be humane, you know. But, you know, they say the road to hell is paved with good intentions. That's mm-hmm. a perfect example. There are people who are going to obviously watch that and say, wow, I'm going to go down to the store right now and do the same thing. Right. And I'm going to get away with it. That's a recipe for disaster. Not good at all. What part of that was humane, though? What What was the point of... Well, I guess people who are in a certain situation underprivileged. You don't want to create a greater harm by incarcerating them over something petty. I get that. That's a, you know, legitimate. But they're almost being incentivized now to steal up and up to $900. Exactly. That's exactly what happens. And that's why it doesn't work. And everyone's cars are getting broken into now and windows are being broken. Yeah, and Absolutely. No, people LA are leaving their mess. hatches open so that their windows don't get broken. Really? They're saying, just come in, take the quarters, look around, there's nothing here. Yeah. Just don't break the windows, right. you know? They leave the hatches open. It happened to my friend Brett right before he came. He traveled back here for the East Coast a day before he was getting ready to leave. All of his windows, his windshield was broken. There was nothing to even take in the car, you know? And now he's has this bill that he has to pay right before Christmas. It's terrible. It also creates a lot of hatred for people that shouldn't be hated on, you know? What um, do you mean? Well, it gives one group of people a reason to hate another group of people. Some people might argue that this is part of some grand plan, but I guess that's a subject that's beyond the scope of our discussion. We're going to bring you back. <laughs> You're going to be like, like my it. Dr. Phil like, or okay. what's the other guy? Dr. Dr. Dre. Dr. Oz. Was uh. Doc- yes, you Dr. Dre as well. So in wrapping up, um, I just want to touch real quick on the metaverse and our conversation yeah. that we had prior to this podcast where you're considering... Uh, practicing in the metaverse. 
I'm not sure if the people listening have a full grasp on the metaverse. I don't yet. Uh, I'm fascinated by it. I would like to do a podcast in there. But can you just give us a brief overview of what that is and what you can be doing in there should you move your services into there? Well, it's new to me too, but I'm absolutely open to meeting a client in the metaverse, especially if that's their preferred form of personal expression. In some ways, it can only help me understand the person better, especially how they see themselves, their, the way they express themselves, the way they would like to be uh, seen. Let's rewind a second and kind of explain what the metaverse is. So it's sort of like a, a virtual reality slash augmented reality world. Yeah, it's like an augmented reality, just the same as when you put on the video game goggles, mm-hmm. you know, the Oculus Quest or, you know, anything like that. Um, and it's coming, and it's coming very soon. I think next year, I think, is it Apple? They're putting out the glasses for it. The video games are intense. I mean, you know, they give you a sense of depth that, I mean, if, you know, some of the games where you're flying and you look down you really get the sense of like the fear of height, you know, you feel like you're really in it. These experiences are highly immersive. So just the same as you would meet someone on a Zoom meeting nowadays or a Skype meeting to talk to them uh, or screen share, uh, this is an augmented reality. It's the same thing, but you're actually seeing a three-dimensional image of them or rather their avatar, what they might want to project themselves as. And you can actually see them too if they want them to see your image it would be the closest thing to actually being in the room with somebody right you know it's so cool to me it's it's scary on one hand because civilization as a whole can really be changed through this and i don't know that it's all going to be positive changes i think what scares me about it is the social aspect or people growing children you know born into this already existing yeah we don't know what that's going to do to how they interact and social and what happens when you're not in the metaverse and are they going to have problems socially, you know, outside of that. So it just brings a whole host of concerns to me. But on, on the other hand, I'm so intrigued and fascinated by it. And I think it, it is coming. We can't deny that. And I'd rather know as much about it as I can, as soon as I can. If there are things like real estate, virtual real estate, for example, if there are things that I can get in on early, you know. Well, just imagine that you owned a uh, billboard in the Grand Theft Auto video game, you know, Jamie all over, you know, except you're all over over Grand Theft Auto and everybody that ever plays that game is going to run into that billboard. That's just as good as real real estate. Yeah. Just as valuable. Yeah. One way that it was described to me by my brother, actually, who's here, which really helped me kind of visualize what it is or what it can be, is he said Nike bought real estate there, right? So think of yourself, if you're online shopping, you would typically go to the Nike website and you would purchase your sneaker. In the metaverse, you can actually, you walk into that store and you can pick it up. You can see yeah. what it looks like on you. You're Move in, in 3D, you're in the website, yeah. basically. Yeah. Then when I presented this to my other friend, Will, who he was super early on with Bitcoin, and I always trust his opinion with like new technologies, he said, that almost feels like going backwards rather than forwards. And I didn't look at it that way before because I thought website, and then you're actually you know in the website. But his take on it was, no, first is the actual store in real life, and now you don't have to get up and go to the store. You can just go on the website and order it. That's a step forward. His point was the metaverse seems like a step backwards. Hmm. So it concerns me that he's not as hyped on it as I am 
because I trust his opinion in things like this. So either way, I think it's all very interesting. It's interesting. Your concerns are about it. I have those too, but my, my concern is like really out there. Deep in the back of my mind, I, I, I wonder if this is like a, you know, a, the self-fulfilling prophecy of um, simulation theory playing itself out. Maybe this is the beginning of it, you know? Maybe right. this is the beginning the, when we see it, you know, the, the theory that this is all a simulation and that even if there is a God or a creator, that he himself or they themselves are in the simulation and not aware. So Imagine. It's crazy, right? Yes. And now we're doing this metaverse thing. You know, it seems like it could really be something like that. Maybe as a civilization advances, they get to the point where everything is a simulation. Right. And we what if we are a simulation of a previous civilization from another planet? It's one and, hell of a simulation, right? I'll tell you. We don't need to go that deep. Right yeah. No. <laughs> <laughs> where would you say the state of medicine is today? Where, where do you see, the, aside from the metaverse, where do you see it going? Is it moving into the telepsychiatry space yeah, more? I think so. That's one of the reasons I try to get out of the world of managed care, especially in, in my field. If you go into a clinic many times, they want you to see a patient every 20 minutes or 30 minutes for follow-up. You refill the medications, ask them how they're doing. I mean, that's just terrible. Sometimes it pe takes people 20 minutes just to warm up and be comfortable enough to just settle in and start talking, you know? I mean, that's kind of where things are. It's very cold, very algorithmic, and very much like a money machine when you go to these places. The doctor's not running the show. The secretary's running the show. And if you just listen to the the phone calls, you'll see it. You know, your 2 o'clock is here. Oh, your 2.30 is here. Your 3 o'clock is here. Your 3.30 is here. Your 4 o'clock. You know, in the meantime, you, you're sitting in front of your 1 o'clock, and you're just trying to get them to warm up. And you're going to refill the meds, call the pharmacy. I mean, it's impossible to do it all in 20 minutes. So Does it feel almost like a pill factory? Like your people it are... It does. It yeah. does. You know, I am very appreciative of all the opportunities that I've been given in medicine. and But, you know, there were definitely a lot of times there especially working in an environment like that where you are pushing pills. You're really just refilling scripts, and a lot of people, that's just what they're there for. They're there for Adderall, they're there for, for Xanax. If you kind of start to make too much of a fuss about it, the machine doesn't like disgruntled clients. There are sorts of all sorts of psychosocial pressures that can happen. It's just, it's not good. We need healthcare reform. I agree, sure. and what you do can't be easy, especially if you're, ethical. I feel like because if you are put in a situation where you're being incentivized to just give out pills and you don't want to, are you incentivized? Are, is that a thing? Do, is... You are incentivized because you your productivity is measured on paper and you'll go to a, you know, a monthly meeting, like a staff meeting, you'll, you'll have the productivity in front of you to see it's a graph. You're criticized on it. You know, uh, If you weren't on vacation and you didn't have a high productivity, then, you know, they'll talk to you about it. You know, I mean, what is, what is productivity measured by the amount of prescriptions? I guess the productivity is measured by the number of appointments created versus fulfilled. Okay. Basically how many you're seeing. Getting you know? in and out. Yeah. Getting in and out, completing. Okay. When it shouldn't be any, about that at all, it should be about the individual, you know, it should be about the individual care and there should be no situation where a patient can strong arm a doctor for narcotics, you know, that's not a good... How do we prevent that? How does the healthcare reform happen? I don't do, know. Do they, make, think... do they have to stop making it a for-profit business? I don't know. I, I don't have a good answer to that. Does it seem strange to you that hospitals are for-profit? Yes, I guess they shouldn't be. 
right? right? We're in the business of helping people. I suppose there's still nothing wrong with a for-profit hospital if it's giving good care, right? But let's take the example of childbirth. Let's take C-section versus a natural birth. The C-section is faster and I believe costs more money. In that case, isn't the hospital incentivized to push for that outcome more? Yeah, absolutely. And don't quote me on this, but I think the U.S. has the high, highest number of C-sections. I think you're right, yeah. So food for thought. Yeah. I don't know how long we've, we've gone, and I, I'm pretty sure it's over an hour I would love to bring you back for part two. I'd love to come back. We can get into some more controversial subjects. Okay, <laughs> we'll see how fast I can lose my medical license. <laughs> so yes, I would love to bring you back for part two and maybe many other parts. I, you know, if, if we have people write yeah, in great. with more questions and maybe we can even bring someone on, a caller on, and you can answer more specific questions because I know today was very generalized. And, yes. you know, to your point, it's yes, based on the specific, individual. It's, yes, because I can ask, you know, well, tell me about your background. You right. know, tell me about your, your family. Right. Really so if anyone would like to volunteer themselves, you can do it anonymously. Sure. And it might help others, too, to listen in. So I would sure. I would love to do that. In the meantime, before we bring you back, what are you currently working on and how can people find you? Yeah, uh, speaking of leaving the world of managed care, I've, I've gone to for my own entity, a company called Divan Mobile. Um, how do you spell that? D-I-V-A-N. And where uh, did that name come from? A divan or a divan, if you want to pronounce it like that, is a couch. Traditionally, um, you know, in the days of Freud and stuff, they used a divan for psychotherapy. Oh, okay. Is it that's the couch that that's, people lay down on? Yeah, that's on? the couch that people okay. lay down on. But it's a play on words because I actually have a mobile medical unit that's a van. It's oh, the, it's the van. Okay. So in there, I can, you know, have my my PPE, my my personal protective equipment. I can shower. I can change my scrubs. I can do my notes, and I I provide a service where it's concierge psychiatry for very acute cases. So. Um, I come to the client's home or nursing home or place of residence, and um, I do the session there, medication management, do therapy, depending, or uh, whatever the client needs. And I specialize in people who are uh, my typical client. It would be someone who has been in and out of inpatient psychiatric units a few times. Okay. And so, in a sense, you're bringing the house call back. Yes. Yes. Interesting. A house call psychiatrist. Yeah. So this is a new venture for you, and you are just in the process of getting it started. When would you say you'd be up and running? Within a month, yes. Excellent. Okay. So I'm licensed to practice medicine in New York and New Jersey. You can always write to me at info at divanmobile.com or uh, drola at divanmobile.com. And Dr. Ola is O-L-L-A. O-L-L-A, yep. Okay. That's right. Well, I want to just thank you so much for your honesty. And All right. I hope. Thanks for having me. I hope uh, you don't get in any trouble with the uh, DOJ. Yeah, no, those the... days are over. Okay, yeah. great. Thank I you. I drive for... a Hyundai now. So. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> but thank you again for, for being me. so open and honest and for all of the time that you've spent here with me. Uh, My I know you have a very rambunctious three year old that wants your attention so i appreciate (laughs) you taking the time out to do this anytime thank you so much and thank you all for listening i'm so happy because today found my friends here in my head i'm so ugly that's okay because so are you Every day for all I care, and I'm not
and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.